But long term, there is a threat from the Russians. That is, at some point, they will rebuild this military capability. No matter what the Baltics do, they are not going to be able to defend themselves. They are going to have to uh, have help from NATO. It's important for Europe because this is really going to be a European problem. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And on this episode, I'm joined by Mark Cancia, a retired Marine colonel and a senior advisor with the International Security Program at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is also the author of a recent report published by CSIS on defense and deterrence in the Baltic states, specifically how NATO can contribute to both. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania face a unique threat landscape. All three border Russia, for example, so last year's Russian invasion of Ukraine naturally raises fears of future aggression by Russia's military targeting one or all of these countries. Moscow has also meddled in all three in the past, including by seeking to stoke grievances among the sizable Russian-speaking population spread across the Baltics. Anybody who has watched Russia's approach to Ukraine over the past decade will recognize that playbook. But how can NATO best contribute to deterring Russian military action against these three alliance members? and defending against such an action if it occurs. That's the focus of the discussion you're about to hear. Before we get to it, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Mark Kansian. Mark Kansian, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. So I asked you to come on to talk about a really, really fascinating report uh, that was published last month in July um, by CSIS uh, that you co-authored um, about, essentially about Baltic security and and NATO's contribution to uh, enhancing, shoring up Baltic security, particularly, uh, you know, again, in the context of Russian aggression in neighboring Ukraine. The report, I guess to kind of kick us off, the report is called Repel, Don't Expel. Uh, and I wonder if you can kind of uh, explain, I mean, uh, you know, on a surface level, I think it's kind of intuitive what that means, but if you can kind of explain, um, you know, what that means and and why that's such a central idea that you decided to name the report that. Yeah, we, we named it Repel, Don't Expel, which came from a, a quotation from one of the uh, Baltic officials. Uh, the notion that it's better to uh, have a strategy of denial and uh, to hold on to territory rather than to cede territory and then to try to expel uh, an aggressor, uh, the Russians in this case, uh, from uh, occupied territory. You know, we can see in the case of Ukraine just how difficult that is, particularly after an adversary like Russia has had time uh, to dig in. But what we were pushing back against were some theories about what you might call deterrence by reinforcement. That is that NATO in the Baltic areas would cede territory, but then would build up uh, after mobilization and would launch a counteroffensive and retake the territory. And you know, that, that had a variety of uh, weaknesses. One is, of course, it might not work. Uh, we're seeing that. Uh, in Ukraine, but there's also the problem about the, you know, the suffering 
that the Baltic peoples would endure, and you know the pro the general problem about you know, how do you get at if you're pushed out of the Baltics, how do you get back in? You have to go through this narrow gap, this walking gap, uh, which would be under fire, perhaps even occupied by uh, the Russians in Kaliningrad and then maybe Russians in Belarus. So, uh, but the NATO had been sort of drifting towards that uh, theory. They had battle groups that they had stood up, which was a, a great step forward, but the battle groups were only about a thousand strong and there were lots of promises about, oh yeah, in a crisis, you know, we'll, we'll push forces forward. Uh, the, uh, the Germans particularly made people nervous because of the low readiness of their forces. So that's a long explanation about why we named it Repel, Don't Expel. In other words, hold and don't cede territory that you have to reconquer later. So, you know, when we're talking about kind of the threat environment, we're clearly talking about Russia. And when you describe in the report the... Um, the, the threat environment sort of with respect to Russia, you describe it as one of short-term opportunity and long-term dangers. I think, you know, this is another kind of important framing question is to describe that threat. What do you mean when you, when you say that short-term opportunity and long-term dangers? Yeah. And the threat is Russia. NATO is very clear that Russia is the, uh, the, the near-term security threat to NATO. And in addition to terrorism, which is also serious, but a different kind of uh, threat. Um, the, the notion of near-term opportunity and long-term threat is that in the near term, there's an opportunity to build up capability uh, forces because the Russians are, of course, mired in Ukraine, and it's going to take them some period of time to really build uh, a threatening military capability. Uh, but long-term, there is a threat from the Russians. That is, at some point, they will rebuild this military capability. They've made it very clear they plan to do that. They've talked about, in fact, expanding their armed forces, even post-war. And although we would like to believe that a future Russian regime would be liberal and democratic and at peace with its neighbors, that doesn't look likely. Even if Putin were to be overthrown as a result of the war or you know, the internal politics of Russia, the regime that comes after him will still be authoritarian, it will be anti-Western, it will be paranoid, and it will be highly militarized. So no matter what happens in the war in Ukraine, is going to be a long-term threat to the Baltics. So, you know, there are a couple of kind of just fundamental realities that I think are really important factors to, to, you know, to consider obviously here. One of them is size. You know, these are small countries. The other is geography and where they're physically located, um, both with respect to Russia and with respect to all of the places where we could marshal military power and, and project forward to come to their defense. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges? Exactly. Uh, the first challenge, as you point out, is size. Uh, the Baltics have done a lot for their own defense. You know, their spending is in the mid 2% of GDP. Uh, for several, it's headed to 3% of GDP. There are only about 10 other NATO countries that have achieved that level. Uh, they have instituted conscription, which only about half a dozen NATO countries still have. Uh, the Lithuanians uh, have 0.8 to 1% of their population on active duty. 
the United States is at about half that, almost exactly 0.41. The Germans, by contrast, are at 0.22. So they have one quarter as many proportionately in, uh, in uniform. The problem is that the German army is eight times the size of the Lithuania army. And the reason is that Germany is just much, a much larger country. And that gives a sense about the, that no matter what the Baltics do, uh, they are not going to be able to defend themselves. They are going to have to uh, have help from NATO. And in terms of geography, where that help will come from, you know, uh, I found this really interesting. You noted in the report that NATO re- reinforcements must travel uh, in order to get to there to the Baltics, if that becomes the front line, as much as ten times as far as during the Cold War. Um, can you describe, you know, a kind of the scale of that challenge, but B, if there are things that could be done internally within NATO to to mitigate some of it. Yes, during the Cold War, uh, the inter-German border where the clash would take place was right n- near where the U.S. and NATO had forces stationed. You know, the U.S. had many forces in Germany, as did the Brits and the French. Uh, and of course, the West Germans had their own uh, forces. They didn't have to go very far to get to the war. Uh, now, those forces are basically in the same spot, but uh, now they have to go much further, get to the Baltics. That's about 10 times uh, as far. So it's going to take a lot longer. And what that means is that you can't rely on reinforcement. Reinforcement's going to take probably weeks, uh, if the, even if the uh, political decisions are made uh, relatively rapidly. So there's a need to have forces in place in the Baltic countries. And that's been the focus of a lot of the debate. After the 2014 Russian invasion of both Crimea and um, the Donbass, NATO created these battle groups. Uh, They created four at that time. They've added four more. Uh, There's basically one each in each of the the, uh, Baltic countries and there's one in Poland. And the battle groups are classic NATO conglomerations of many uh, different nationalities. Uh, there's a country that's in charge of uh, sort of coordinating the battle group. For Lithuania, it's the Germans. For Poland, it's the United States. Uh, the Brits also have one. Um, but the battle groups are only about 1,000, maybe 1,500. It's not a very uh, powerful group. And of course, being made up of many different countries, you've got tremendous coordination problems. So there's a push by particularly the um, Baltic states to increase the size to a brigade. And in fact, NATO has made that commitment to increase to a brigade. The problem, as we point out in the report, is it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to increase this to a brigade. And it's another to actually have a brigade on the ground, uh, particularly when you're dealing with NATO countries that either don't have very large forces like the Brits, you know, whose army continues to get smaller, although it's pretty high quality, or the Germans, you know, just have very low readiness forces. So there's been a lot of focus there. The Germans have said all the right things where they can get a brigade on the ground uh, is another matter. But but having those forces on the ground is critical to doing this forward defense. You know, so even if each one of these, what are effectively battalion-sized battle groups now, are in fact expanded to... um, to brigade size, we're talking still numbers that are, you know, in the vicinity of 
of the numbers of U.S. personnel, say, in Korea, and there's a lot of talk about the U.S. presence in Korea being effectively a tripwire force, is the risk that even with that expansion to larger battle groups, that it would represent at best a tripwire force and perhaps not have the deterrent effect? Or is that does that reach kind of the threshold where you really force you know, whoever's doing the doing the thinking in the Kremlin at the time to think twice about making a move against any one of these three countries. Yeah, uh, the notion is that the combination of these four deployed NATO forces, beefed up local forces, plus prepositioned equipment, which is also uh, an element that uh, NATO has um, cited and committed to, that all that together will buy enough time that the, uh, the rest of NATO can get forces in there and hold forward. Uh, clearly, there's this risk and, you know, and the ability to uh, hold forward is very dependent on the timelines of you know, how the war uh, comes about. But as a package, it's uh, not unreasonable to think that it might be able to buy, buy enough time. The way you describe the forces that, um, that this report highlights are, are needed uh, you know, their presence is needed in the Baltics is uh, robust in-place combat-ready forces. Uh, we know what in-place means. We just talked about that. When you say robust and combat-ready, what specifically are you referring to? Well, the robust part is the expansion from battle group to brigade and including uh, pre-positioned equipment, uh, plus you know, the other elements that go with rapid reinforcement, which the Baltic countries in need have already done a lot of, you know, preparing infrastructure, for example, and airfields and the like. Um, but the, uh, the, the part about you know, combat ready is really looking at many of the NATO countries, particularly the Germans, uh, whose forces have not been very ready. Uh, the Germans in particular have built a military that is arguably a mobilization force, that is that it really doesn't have much combat power uh, without six months or so of uh, preparation and mobilization. In fact, the head of the German army made that same uh, criticism. Uh, many of the other countries, you know, the, the Belgians, for example, um, you know, they their forces also have readiness uh, uh, problems. So the, the combat ready part is uh, also important. It, again, it's not something that I think the United States thinks about quite as much because our forces are pretty combat ready, particularly the forward deployed ones. Uh, you know, there's always arguments about whether they're ready enough, but you know, by the stand, by world standards, they're very ready. Uh, that's not true of many of our NATO allies. How much of the role of of NATO forces that are there is training local forces, training the host nation forces? Well, there's clearly uh, an important element there. The United States and NATO have been sending forces forward for you know, over a decade to help train the local forces. And they're getting to a uh, pretty high level of proficiency, it seems. Uh, you know, there are reports that they've done well in exercises. It's always a little uh, hard to tell, but you know, that will be a, a, an ongoing effort to keep their uh, readiness up. The other challenge also is that they want to develop uh, national divisions to take the brigade or two that they have now and put a division headquarters on it. They don't have any experience at that level of command, and it'll take a lot of work uh, to get them to a point where uh, that level of command is viable. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I found that section of the report really fascinating is force structure. You know, these are the things that sometimes 
we think of in this kind of abstract sense and sometimes, you know, discussions of it are, are a bit dry, but this is a very real and important, um, uh, uh, you know, factor in terms of improving, enhancing the, the, the security of the Baltic states is, is kind of addressing any force structure issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that with division headquarters, for instance? Right. Uh, taking a look at the, the command and control elements that we in the United States tend to take for granted, you know, you've got the brigade, you've got the division, you've got the Corps, you know, you've got the field army uh, in certain circumstances. Um, you've got the combatant command. Uh, with NATO, it, it's really a lot more ad hoc. Um, the challenge with the Baltic countries is that uh, the local forces, the battle group plus the, the national forces were grouped into two divisions and those divisions came under a provisional core in Poland. Uh, but the countries involved, you know, they wanted to expand their uh, capabilities. They wanted to get a division headquarters. So, you know, figuring out, okay, how do you get the, the national structure to fit with a NATO structure and how to get it all sort of um, staffed up and trained so that it would operate smoothly in conflict uh, that's a tremendous challenge. You know, getting it to work in peacetime, you know, to coordinate exercises and all, uh, you know, I mean, that's useful, uh, but that's the same as operating in uh, wartime. And, you know, and one of the things we point out in the, in the report is NATO needs to first settle on a um, command and control structure and then get that uh, staffed and trained. You know, you mentioned... Um that you, you discussed kind of the the growth of the uh, the three Baltic states military forces um, and the efforts that are underway. You talked about the fact that they are, I think they're three of, it's six or seven total NATO members that actually hit the 2% of GDP defense spending threshold. You know, but 2% of the GDP of these rather small countries is is pretty small. How important then is it that other countries do increase their spending to hit that threshold to sort of augment and offset, you know, the the relatively small numbers of amounts of money that the Baltic states can actually feasibly spend. Yeah, um, it's first important for the Baltics, of course, to do everything they can. I mean, this is their territory; they are the ones uh, under threat, and uh, you know, the, the first um, responsibility for defense is on them. It's also important for them to make the efforts so that they show the rest of NATO that they are doing everything they can and therefore additional help uh, needs to come from the outside. And I think they have done that between the percentage of GDP uh, and the size of their armed forces, given the small base that they uh, have to work with. But it's also important for the rest of NATO. Of course, you talked about the 2% GDP target that was established back in 2014. They're about depending on the month, uh, probably about 11 uh, NATO countries that meet that, including the three sure. uh, Baltic countries. Uh, there are plans to expand that to 19. You know, we'll see if that actually uh, comes through. The Vilnius summit that just completed uh, uh, set 2% as a floor. It said at least 2% given the new challenges that the alliance faces. We'll see if other countries uh, you know, raise their spending to uh, commensurate levels. Um, but it's important for Europe because this is really going to be a European problem. And it's going to be a European problem for two reasons. Uh, one is that many of the forces that are going to be involved, most of the forces are going to be European. The United States has 
commitments in the Baltics, but also all along Eastern Europe and along Southern Europe. Plus, the United States is going to be distracted by the Pacific. You know, the, the current national defense strategy says that uh, China is the pacing competitor. Uh, there are many strategists who want to focus almost exclusively on China. And uh, there's going to be, as a result, a lot of pressure to moderate what the United States does in, in Europe to focus on China. And that, again, puts more pressure on the Europeans, and they're going to have to spend the money to make the this deterrence uh, real. Yeah, I think you said it, Bridge Colby and maybe a couple of others uh, and their arguments that... And- Look, these are you know these are rational arguments. When you look at the um, you know the potential threat, especially in the years to come, posed by uh, posed by China, that hey, this is where we need to uh, you know kind of focus our strategic attention, and we shouldn't be distracted by Europe. At the same time, as you said, that that puts a lot of the um, burden in the event of a crisis on some of our European NATO partners. What are the biggest challenges? You talked about you know. German readiness and and the need to really go through a kind of a full scale mobilization before they're before they're ready. What are some of the other challenges to some of the European NATO members taking the lead in such a contingency? Other than spending and the readiness that goes uh, with that, there are there are two additional challenges. One is making these multinational battle groups or brigades functional. I mean, it's one thing in peacetime to run exercises where you know where you have a a German battalion and a, a Danish company and a Norwegian platoon and you know all little bits and pieces, uh, but in wartime, getting them to operate as a coherent whole will be very challenging. Uh, we've never really done that, and uh, uh, you know, doing the training, doing the exercising to make that real is going to be uh, a challenge. Uh, the other uh, challenge is the political one, that is getting NATO to take action in a timely manner. And this has been an issue from the beginning of the alliance during the Cold War. Many, many discussions about whether NATO would react promptly to a then Soviet uh, threat if the Soviets were mobilizing, you know, what would NATO do in response? And the same problem is going to be evident here. You know, that is, when um, Russia was mobilizing to attack Ukraine, it was just hard to believe that they would actually do that, uh, even though the United States was jumping up and down saying, hey, our intelligence community is saying that, you know, they're, they're going to attack uh, uh, many countries, the Germans particularly, uh, just found it impossible to believe. And you'll see the same dynamic if there were going to be an attack on the Baltic countries and you know, getting uh, mechanisms so that at least some troops can get in there before uh, 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 countries before uh, nations make uh, you know, irrevocable or hard decisions about mobilization is important. That's one of the reasons that having troops in place is so valuable because it means that the country's NATO doesn't need to do anything in order to have a credible deterrence. The troops are already there. Whereas if you're relying on reinforcements, NATO has to make a decision that many would regard as provocative. So you know, there's that political step that's going to be very difficult. How comprehensive, you know, I guess, how comprehensive are and should be the relationships between the NATO forces that are there in the, in the form of these battle groups, 
the host nation forces, the Estonians, the Lithuanians, and the Latvians, and say the other components of each of these countries has some form of total defense sort of plan in place uh, that in, in, include the mobilization of civilians and and they look a little bit different in each one of these countries. But how important is kind of full-scale integration of the NATO forces with those broader kind of approaches? And that's clearly very important. And the Baltic countries, to their credit, have thought a lot about a whole of nation, uh, national defense, what civilians can do, what uh, territorial uh, uh, units can do, as well as regular military forces. Their problem, of course, is that you know the, their militaries just aren't very large. Uh, one of the values of a national like division or you know command cent center is that they can bring all of those uh, pieces together, um, but you know that has to be worked out ahead of time. I think getting the national uh, organizations to work together certainly more straightforward because they're all you know from the same. Uh, country, you know, at least they have the same political uh, establishment, you know, but then bring NATO in there. And of course, you've got the NATO on the ground, the battle group, maybe a brigade someday, and then you've got reinforcements coming in. And again, that gets to this command and control question that needs to be thrashed out now, rather than uh, when the troops come under fire, because it's, it's too late, it's just chaos. And, you know, one of the uh, examples we point to about failure of these kinds of arrangements uh, is in the Pacific and the Second World War. This is the, the ABDA, uh, multinational naval forces that were put together uh, uh, in uh, Indonesia. It was the it was the U.S. It was the British. It was the Dutch. It was the Australians. Uh, they put um, uh, multinational uh, naval task forces together to fight the. The Japanese, it was a disaster. Uh, getting them all to, to work together when they had never worked together in peacetime uh, was worked very poorly. And that, you know, of course, the Japanese were you know, very effective in their own right. Uh, so, you know, these forces were essentially destroyed. Uh, and we want to avoid that uh, uh, in a future conflict. And to go back to that, you know, that. 1942 example. Yes, we figured out over time how to get multinational naval forces to work together in the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, that worked really very, very well. But you don't want to go through a year of uh, naval disasters to get to a command and control arrangement that works. In terms of equipment, um, another fact kind of that, that you noted in the report that I found really interesting that was that as a proportion of GDP, each of these three countries has delivered more aid to Ukraine uh, than any other than any other country has delivered. Uh, we've seen even in the U.S., you know, with our pretty vast resources and um, and stockpiles of equipment, a lot of that aid has left us pretty, you know, shorthanded of 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 certain pieces of key equipment that you know the U.S. military is actively working to kind of reconstitute. That's a really big problem when you have you know when you're starting from kind of such a small base like these three countries has. How big a deal is uh, is that, you know, how how short of equipment has supporting Ukraine left these three countries? Um, yes, uh, it, it's a it's a problem. It's a solvable problem. But to start with, it's important to recognize that, you know, the Baltic countries, they, they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. You know, not only do they talk about supporting uh, Ukraine and countering Russian aggression, but they have drawn their own stockpiles down 
far more than any other country. Uh, they've really put uh, uh, accepted some risk here. Uh, it is a problem in the, in the short term. We talked earlier about uh, near-term opportunity, long-term risk. Well, this near-term opportunity is when uh, the Baltic states and all of NATO and the United States can rebuild these inventories. There's enough time there uh, to do that. We're in the United States. We're ramping up um, weapons production. The Europeans are doing uh, the same. That's an opportunity to refill these uh, uh, stockpiles domestically here in uh, the Baltic countries and to enhance those uh, stockpiles. But we have to make a multi-year commitment to doing that in the near term. I think we have done that, uh, but we need to keep that commitment uh, even beyond uh, the end of the war in Ukraine, whenever that is. Uh, but someday that war is going to end and we can't just say, OK, we're done uh, with NATO now uh, and we'll move on to something else, the Pacific or whatever. Uh, we have to keep that, that commitment, that flow of weapons to Eastern Europeans and the Baltic countries so that they can replenish their, their stores and be ready when Russia rebuilds its uh, military capabilities. Um, you know, you mentioned the the Vilnius summit. The, your report was was released, I believe, just before the Vilnius summit. I'm sure a, a, a deliberate decision. Uh, and in it, you you mentioned that the Madrid summit put NATO on a new course. Can you describe that course and whether you know now that we're more than a year on from Madrid and specifically after the Vilnius summit, you know, the alliance whether the alliance is kind of still making progress along that new course or if it has been met with any uh, any setbacks in its momentum. Um, the Madrid summit in the summer of 2022 made a couple of big changes. One is it explicitly said that Russia is the new threat and uh, reiterated the need to build forces to deter uh, Russia. Uh, it enhanced some of the uh, forces in Eastern Europe and adopted a new um, operational concept uh, for um, dealing with uh, potential Russian aggression. Vilnius was an opportunity to further the implementation of those changes that had been agreed to at Madrid. Uh, it did some of that uh, in the sense that took the 2% and made it a, a floor, which uh, was a, a, you know, a big deal for um, uh, many NATO countries. Uh, it reinforced the commitments to uh, building up to brigade strength uh, in the uh, Baltic countries. You know, you read the communique, it, you know, there's a lot of, we, you know, we, we recommit to do X, we recommit to do Y, we recommit to do Z. Not a lot of detail about how you're going to do that. And one of the disappointments I had is that, you know, there aren't any details about what these brigades are going to be. Uh, you know, in U.S. parlance, you know, the, uh, uh, an army uh, brigade combat team, you know, runs sort of four to 5,000 troops. You know, is that what it's going to be? Four to 5,000? We're going from a thousand to four to five thousand. I mean, that would be a big step, but it would also provide a really powerful on-the-spot capability. Uh, those details are missing, and NATO is still working through those. So that I think that part was a, a disappointment. The, the commitments to uh, you know increasing resources, to uh, confronting uh, Russia, to bringing in uh, Finland, which of course is in now, and Sweden, which should come in uh, soon. You know, those were all important also.
Well, Mark, thank you very much. Again, the the report is fascinating. You can, you know, if listeners are interested, um, you know, it's it's you know, it goes into a lot of details that we didn't have a chance to cover in this discussion. So I'd highly recommend they go find it. It's easy to find on the CSIS website. Again, it's called uh, Repel, Don't Expel. Um, so I want to thank you again for for joining me and sharing some of the insights that uh, that uh, you highlighted in the report. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter slash X, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.